of broken people. Uh, I thought that was a better title than we're going to review what we talked about in the fall. <laughs> so uh, it, we are going to cover that. But it, essentially, this process of restoration is one of the themes. I say one of the themes. One of the themes that's going to carry over the six-week study here uh, in, this next, in this next season. Um, now, we'll go through really quickly. This is a really fast review. You know, there was nothing random about the people of Israel that we, re we read about and we heard about in Exodus. In Genesis 17, we read that they are a people with whom God made a covenant. That's a solemn agreement. So God made a covenant with a man named Abraham. We see that in Genesis 17. And under that covenant or under that agreement, God promised to both provide for and protect his people. Provide for and protect them. And this we find in the book of Genesis. Now, the only provision, the only thing that the people had to do as part of this covenant or agreement was to circumcise their, all their male children a certain number of days after birth. This was the sign or the mark of the covenant. So in a sense, that was the first real law that God gave to the people, to his people. And that, for many, many years, was the only, the only law or rule that they followed. They knew about this God that they, were, that they uh, believed in and so on, but there, weren't, there wasn't much else uh, uh, tied to that. Now, if, uh, again, just blasting right through the book of Genesis... Um, Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. Jacob had a son, Joseph. Joseph, through a series of amazing circumstances, you can read about in chapters 37 to 50 of Genesis, Joseph, Joseph ends up in Egypt. And somehow or another through, and if you've never read, by the way, parenthetically, if you've never read the story of Joseph, I highly recommend it. It is the most improbable, unbelievable story you'll ever read. And in a time, you know, for me, I've, I've revisited it several times. Whenever I feel like I'm getting down and I think that maybe God's not around or God's sort of abandoned me or does God really know, I like to go back to that story because, you know, it's, it's an incredible, it's, it's just an incredible story. I guess you can tell it's one of my favorites, but anyway... Um, okay, so Joseph ends up in Egypt. He becomes incredibly powerful in Egypt, powerful second only to Pharaoh. And eventually he brings his entire family, who are the beginnings of the, the quote, nation of Israel. He brings them to Egypt to save them from famine. So it is a provision from God. And when we talked about the Exodus... You, you know, we were talking about all the suffering that they went through, but it's important to remember that they were initially brought to Egypt as an act of salvation because during the time of Joseph there was famine and uh, they probably would have perished in the land of Canaan. So he brought them down and provided for them. Now let's fast forward, way forward, to Exodus chapter 12. And... Um, I consider this to be one of the most monumental understatements 
at least in the Old Testament. And we find it in Exodus 12, and it says, Exodus 12:40, it says that the people of Israel had lived in Egypt for 430 years. Now, lived is a pretty loosely used term there. Okay, we know from the account of Exodus that they were there, yes, 430 years, but they spent four, approximately 400 years in forced labor, in voluntary bondage. People were murdered. People were worked to death. And I don't know about you, but I'm not sure that the word living really covers it. But this is what the people were under. And as we go forward here over the next several weeks, it's really important that we remember that. Think about 430 years. That's longer than our country has been in existence. So if you're anything like history, thinking back, George Washington, the you know, forefathers of the country, this is almost double that time. 430 years of oppression. 430 years of being told what to do, how to do it, and when to do it. No, not even the least bit of freedom did they have. And that's the context that we need to keep in mind for the next several weeks. Because this is the place that the people are coming out of. Now, some of you perhaps have known bondage. You know, not a bondage of slavery, perhaps a bondage of addiction, perhaps a bondage of unhealthy relationships. I mean, there are many ways that we can experience bondage in our lives. In this case, we're talking about a people who were under physical, emotional bondage and oppression for 430 years. How many generations is that? Okay, so that's the, that's the starting point for us. And in a sense, you could say that during their time in Egypt, the people of Israel were under a different law, the law of oppression. And oppression can be a law. It can be, it can squash you. It can sap the life out of you. And this is the place that they were under. This is the position that they were in. So, we're going to take, our, as we have been, for those of you who haven't, uh, this is your first time, we generally, very early on in the time together, we take about a half an hour, and we break up into small groups, so we encourage you to do that. If you've never done it, then follow somebody that looks like they know where they're going, or you can gather there and uh, right where you're seated. We have a couple of discussion questions that are in your handout. I'll go over them real quickly. The first is, what are the challenges faced by a community of people when it emerges en masse from a life of bondage into freedom? So this is a real practical question. It's a real practical question. Think about very practical things, challenges that people face if they're just first coming out of bondage. The second question is related. How would you address those challenges? And even more, not just how do you think you would address them, try to think about them in your group. Make a few priorities. Make a priority list. What would you think would be the most important of the challenges to address for people coming out of 400 years of bondage and oppression? 
Now, I've put there in the notes, what I'd like you to do is to select one of your group to be the scribe spokesperson. So when we come back together, I'm going to ask for some of the answers. Not everybody's going to get a chance to do it. Some of the answers, I'm sure, will be fairly similar. So I'm going to just take a representative example, uh, sample from the spokesperson so we can hear what you all thought were issues that, and challenges that needed to be faced, and then we'll, we'll push on from there. What are the challenges faced by a community of people when it emerges from a life of bondage into freedom? Are you one of the scribes back there? Keep chewing. Go ahead. We'll let somebody else go first. Okay, scribes. What are the challenges? What are some that you talked about in your group? Oh, you wait now. Yes. Trust. Trust. Cheated. You looked at the notes. Okay. Okay, security from bondage. Okay, what else? We had we put, can I throw one in? Yes. Um, we had, like, one of the things that was just, like, basic is, like, provision. Like, how do you find food? How do you find shelter? How do you find who's going to be responsible for finding all that? Okay, That's basic necessities. Yeah. Okay, good. What else? Okay, so no structures. No, there's no structure, is there? And the second was? Okay. Okay, so we can just say no community spirit. Okay, we're going to talk about that very briefly, but we will, yes. Okay, Jason? Goals, identity, okay. All right, that's good. Those are good. That's a good, fairly example. Now, of those of you who, uh, of the things you put down, did you, who gave me their number one priorities there, of, of those of you who, uh, you did? Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay. So we're thinking about some priority orders, right? Trust was a big priority, okay. Uh, goals, Jason, was that, or which was your first priority? Okay, or being pulled back into bondage, correct? Okay, so security, communal security, which one was yours, would you say your highest? Um, we kind of went the opposite way of looking at sort of like the hierarchy of needs, and basic needs being the first one, like surviving. Okay, basic necessities was a, okay, that's good, we're just talking about... Okay, so basic necessities gets two votes, all right. Three votes. Three votes. Oh, look at that. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Close enough. 
Now, why is this important? I mean, I, I hopefully established that in those first few minutes. Why is it important? Okay, I said that the people were under a, if you will, the law of oppression. That's what was written on their hearts. That's all they knew. You did what you were told or you died. You did what you were told. That was the law of oppression. And that law could change at the whim of the oppressor. You think about the sense of insecurity that you would have if the law that you were following was whatever I said it was. Changed at my whim, perhaps one thing today and another tomorrow. Do you see where we're going here? We're not just talking about living under a, an oppressive system that perhaps you can understand. This is random to the nth degree. This is oppression and randomness to the nth degree. So what does that create in you? Okay. When God delivered the people through Moses out of that bondage, he basically wiped the slate clean. And that's what's important for us to understand. There was nothing there once they were released from bondage. They didn't have any roots to fall back on. Nobody had any memories of what it was like to live in freedom. Nobody had any, any rules of living. Nobody had any, there was no list. Somebody goes, let's go to one of the elders and they'll tell us how it used to be. I just thought of an idea, but I'm not going to go there because we don't have time. It's an old... It's a movie idea, but I won't go there. Okay. Uh, or we'll be here all night, trust me. I'll start reciting dialogue from this movie. Anyway, I, but I got that image right. There was no elder or elders to say, well, before captivity, it was like this, and here's how we rebuild. There was nothing. An absolute blank slate. God wiped it clean, and, and what a great blessing that was. But there was nothing there at the exact moment to replace it, okay? So God knew that the people could not survive. They didn't have any resources. They didn't know how to organize themselves. They didn't know what the word security was. They didn't know how to find basic necessities. Everything had been provided. Now, not in much quantities, and we talked about that in the fall. They're complaining when they got out out and said, you know, how about some water? How about something to eat, you know? Well, we don't even know how to do that because, uh, you know, we've always, we've always been given whatever we were going to get. They had no community spirit, did they? Well, there is some. There is, there is a communal sense of being in bondage together, but that's not what you wanted to bind the community together in the future, okay, in, in common bondage. Yes. Sure. Sure, there were. there were. We're not talking that there were no practical skills, but in terms of, this is what we're talking about, remember, they were never organized to their own ends. Okay? They were never, yes, Paul. Right. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we are not going to cover them in this six-week series, but if you go out into the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you'll see all kinds of laws, and some of those laws had to do with you're to treat an animal this way, and here's how you prepare this type of thing. I mean, very practical things that add the, if you will, the foundation to somebody who might have had some basic skills as to... Uh, you know, husbandry with animals and things like this. So, yes, the skills existed. I'm talking more about their hearts here, okay, in terms of rebuilding them as a community. And God also knew that they didn't have the, the, they didn't have the, the expertise to govern themselves and, as we said, to form themselves into a community. So this is why God needed to give them some laws and some rules, just some basic things about how to live. Now, in the upcoming weeks, we're going to explore some of those. We're not going to go into great depth. We're not going to be going throughout the first five books of the, of the Bible. But we're going to talk about some of those laws and rules. We're going to talk about their purpose and why they were important to the community. So this is sort of setting the stage for what you're going to hear over the next several weeks. Now, an interesting thing happened, though, and I'm just going to introduce this because it'll be something that we'll touch upon the people over time exchange one form of bondage for another. Eventually, between in the millennia, between the Exodus and the coming of Jesus, the people took the laws that God gave them, wrung the life out of them, and made them a whole bunch of uh, an incredible list of rules that no one could fulfill. And then they made that the definition of what it meant to be godly. They wrung the life out of it. And as we're going to hear in ensuing weeks, this is why it was so important for Jesus to come. Not necessarily to abolish the law, but to set to right the intent of the law. And it is, it is in our human nature, see, to do that. We like to make rules. We like to measure and compare. We like to say, you can't do that because I can't do it. You can't, you can't have that. We all have to have the same rules or it's not fair. And God knew this. God knew this from all the way back. So that's just a sneak preview on um, what's coming up. But before we go there in the ensuing weeks, I want to finish our time together tonight. And I want to talk about trust. Because trust is essential here. And God knew that before his people would accept or implement any law he gave, they had to trust him. And in leaving Egypt, and then subsequently in the wilderness, their trust in God was focused through one man. Who was he? Moses. Okay? You don't trust Moses, you don't trust God. Ah, Moses just a guy. No, Moses was not just a guy, was he? We, went, we just came through the Call of Moses series. Moses was just not some guy who said that God sent him. Moses was God's representative, okay? And Pastor Terry last fall spent a significant amount of time looking at Exodus chapters 3 and 4. 
and we see who Moses was. See, you know, it's interesting. If you're going to lead people somewhere, you have to have some experiential background. Okay? Is that why Moses just didn't come out of Pharaoh's house and immediately lead the people? Perhaps. So what happened to him? He gets run out of town. He goes out in the desert. Now, I happen to be a native Californian, and I've spent lots of time in the desert. And one of the things that desert does to things with its dryness and heat and sun is it bleaches things, takes the color out of them, almost sucks the literal water of life out of things. And this is what happens in the desert. It's what happened to Moses. And what got sucked out of Moses was the old guy that used to live in Pharaoh's house in Egypt. He spent 40 years getting bleached in the desert. <laughs> Why? So that he would know and be prepared for what it was like to be remade. Because that's what happened to him, wasn't he? He was remade. A man grows up in Pharaoh's house and he doesn't know how to speak articulately. Yet the man who did that goes before God and whines, doesn't he? As Pastor Terry covered him, right? He just whines. And what else does he demonstrate? Think about the false series here, the call of Moses. He doesn't trust God, does he? No, he doesn't trust God. You can't, you're going to send me to do what? No, I will go with you. What? No I, no, I can't do it. Okay, here, the rod of, uh, the rod of power. Oh, E.G., that's nice. Yeah, look at that. No, I can't do it. I still can't do it, okay? I, I can't talk. I, I, I stutter. I, I, I get upset when I'm, when I'm in front of somebody, okay? Well, you know what? Here comes your brother. I'll send your brother with you. He can speak for you. And you know, as an aside, and it's... Uh, you can write these down if you want to look at it. Exodus 32 and Numbers 12. Moses eventually comes to regret that he ever asked God to send his brother with him. Okay? In Exodus 32, we have the incident of the golden calf. Moses has gone too long. Aaron freaks out. And next thing you know, they bring out some false gods to start worshiping. Okay, while Moses is gone. Okay, Numbers 12, his own brother and sister turn against him, including that includes Aaron, Aaron and Miriam, okay? So Moses got what he asked for under the theory of be careful what you ask for, okay? God knew that Moses ultimately really didn't need Aaron, and he tried to get him to go without his brother, but when Moses kept whining, God got angry and just said, okay, you want your brother? Take your brother. Here you go. So that's why I pointed those two. It's, we won't be covering them in here, but it's, they're interesting stories to go and look at in terms of a, a betrayal. Okay. So we go back to that. Who is God's representative? Moses. And how the people perceive God, how the people deal with Moses is how they perceive God. And, you know, this happens albeit on a much smaller scale, with anyone who steps into leadership in the church. Okay? You want to find out how people really think about God? Step up to be a leader. 
step up to lead people, and you will see. I'm not saying it is a bad thing, but it's a, it's a way because God puts us in a position to be able to just even, he just pulls the curtain back just a little bit, and we see into people's hearts. And I challenge you to talk to any leader who's ever led in a church and for them not to tell you some story of being hurt, wounded, rejected, not trusted, because it's in our nature. It's in our nature. I'm not being accusatory here. It's in our nature. And this is what happened with Moses. So trust. God knew that trust was absolutely critical. Okay, let's look at some scriptures here and what God did. This is also our way of taking one more look at where we were in the fall, okay? First one there. Uh, let me see. I'll read from yours so I see what you're looking at. I think we're the same, but just to be safe. Okay. People initially trust Moses and God. What happens after God sends Moses back to Egypt? We quote there from Exodus 4.29. They called the people together. They told them everything the Lord had said. The miracles he'd performed, they watched. And the people, it says, then the people of Israel were convinced that the Lord had sent Moses and Aaron. And they bowed down and worshipped. Okay? This all takes place in Exodus chapter 4. So the people hear the good news, they see some signs, and they say, we believe God sent you to rescue us. Fast forward, Exodus chapter 5, the first sign of adversity, the people withdraw their trust. Okay, you recall the story. Moses goes in, complains to Pharaoh again. Pharaoh says, you know what, I'm sick of you. From now on, you make bricks without straw. You go get your own straw used to be that the Egyptians would bring the straw so that they could really pump out the bricks really quickly. Now, you go into the fields and gather your own straw, make your bricks, and guess what? For all that extra work, we're not reducing your quota. You want to send this guy Moses in here? Let me show you what I can do, is what Pharaoh says. So what do the people do? It says there, Exodus 5, 20, 21. As the foreman of the people left Pharaoh's court, they confronted Moses and Aaron who were waiting outside. May the Lord judge and punish you for making us stink before Pharaoh and his officials. You have put a sword into their hands, an excuse to kill us. This, folks, this isn't very long after they were bowing down worshiping, okay? Not long at all. So it didn't take, all it took was one little, one gesture on the part of Pharaoh, and there went trust, poof, okay? Why? Why do you think that is? Because it wasn't rooted. It was, a, it was a veneer of trust. Just a surface level trust. It didn't go down into their hearts, really. They'd been oppressed for so long. They liked the news. They heard it. Moses comes. Let's do this. Okay, yeah, we'll trust you. First sign of adversity, boom, right back to the old way. You make a stink before Pharaoh, Moses. Get out of here. All right. Same chapter. What does Moses do? Remember, this is why it's important that we, we reflect on that series in the fall. What does Moses do? Moses doesn't trust. Moses goes back to God a couple of verses later. Why have you brought all this trouble on your own people? Why did you send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh as your spokesman, even he has been more brutal to your people. You've done nothing to rescue them. So Moses, really, he's not really any different than the people he's trying to lead, is he? 
You know, you think, oh, yeah, Moses is so brave, man. He kept going back to Pharaoh. No, this tells you right there where the man's heart was. He still didn't really trust himself. And then the people didn't trust him. What a mess. But what does God do? Does God strike him down and say, you bum, forget it. I'll find somebody else. Let's go back. Let's rewind. No. Chapter 6, God patiently and lovingly reaffirms Moses and sends him back, but the people rejected. So Moses told the people of Israel what the Lord has said, and they refused to listen anymore. Why? And folks, this is really important. They had become too discouraged by the brutality of their slavery. They were so beat down by life, they didn't even know what it meant to really be happy, to really trust. That is really taking the life out of people, isn't it? That's death without physically dying. That is spiritual death. Hold on to that theme because we're going to come back to it in the next few weeks. Spiritual death. They couldn't even see. They were so, they were so dead inside. Okay, so then in, in verses in chapters 7 through 10, we read about the plagues. Now, the people didn't do anything. God visits these plagues through Moses on Egypt. The whole purpose was not just to convince Pharaoh, because if you read through Exodus 7 through 10, Pharaoh's not convinced. So really, probably really wasn't about Pharaoh. His heart was hardened. God knew it. It was to show the people that God had not abandoned them, that God was going to take the fight to Pharaoh, no matter what the cost. And we have to assume, the Bible doesn't tell us, but we have to assume. Can you imagine if you were sitting there, these plagues are going on, and in your part of the country, it's all nice and serene, no flies, no, what was it, Pastor Paul, boils? We'll never, you'll never live that down, you know. Um, darkness. I bet the river ran blue through their, their land instead of red, okay? So what did this do to them? It was meant to encourage them, okay? So then we get all the way out now. This all happens. Finally, Pharaoh says, you know, and so God tests the people's newly developed trust. And how does he do it? He brings the first test of that trust. In Exodus 12, we read about the Passover. We're going to talk about that more in future weeks. But essentially, God gave the people specific instructions, some rules for that evening, for actually for that, that period. And he said, you better follow these because the angel of death is coming and going to pass, but here's how you can be passed over, how death can pass over your door. You know, and for us reading it today, it doesn't seem like much, does it? I mean, you read it, and, you know, it's hard to take it to heart in a practical sense, but think about it for a minute. You just got some, a very specific set of instructions, and guess what? If you don't comply to the letter... Your firstborn will die tonight. Can you imagine being a parent? 
and saying, did I do it right? Did I get that? Was that did, did I really prepare this right? Did I spread the blood enough over the doorpost? You know, did I, did I really fulfill all of this? Because if I didn't, you know, and then, is this really true? If I, if I comply with these instructions, will God really pass over my house? See, we don't think about it that way, do we? You know, we read about it, but we don't put it. Having to literally trust that the angel of death will not visit your house tonight if you do what you are told to do. Exactly. But that's trust, see. That's why God was building that up in them. Okay. Out they go. Law and order, I called it. And no, I'm not a fan of that show. It wasn't until afterwards I realized that I'd use that, but too late. So the first is law. So the relationship that God established with the people at Passover foreshadowed what was later to happen. So in a sense, we can say that the Passover instructions represented the first of the new laws that God was going to give to the people. These laws were still an affirmation of that covenant that I talked about at the beginning, remember, with Abraham? They were just some more laws now, some new ones, now that the people had come out into freedom. And like the Passover, though, initially, many of those laws had to do with just plain old survival. Here's the things that have to happen, okay? But there wasn't just law, there was order. In Exodus 12, 35, a couple of things happened. And the people of Israel did as Moses instructed. They asked Egyptians for clothing and articles of silver and gold. And the Lord caused the Egyptians to look favorably upon the Israelites. They gave them whatever they asked for. They stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. Now that's obedience. That's trust. Think about it for a minute. Pharaoh says, go. Word passes through the community. Time to go. What do you think you'd do? Clothes on your back, a couple of items... Get me out of here. Right? Am I right or not? What do you think? Right? You're out of there. You don't wait around. And what does God say? God says, no, you know what? I want you to go and knock on the doors. And they probably, there weren't that probably that many Egyptians living proximate. So they, they probably had to travel some distance. Maybe there were some. We don't know. But the logic dictates that the majority of the Egyptians lived somewhat apart from the, from the people of Israel. Okay, so you know what? I know I told you to go and you're free to go, but uh, I need you to take some time. Walk over to that neighborhood over there and start knocking on doors and asking for stuff. Okay? Uh, shouldn't I be leaving about this point? No, no, no. I, I want you to go and knock on the door and ask for stuff. Now, on top of that, think about this. See, folks, we don't think about this kind of stuff, do we? Logistically, think about it. Oh, yeah, here's a, here's a gold pot, and here's this. How do you get that stuff all together? <laughs> that takes time. It takes a plan. Get, take a cart and start going through. Maybe they had, you know, communal carts or something, or who knows what they had. But the fact is it took time. They, didn't they couldn't just get up and run out. There was an order to it. Do you see that? 
even right there, God was at work in that moment to say, trust me, do this in order, and you'll have all that you need, at least for the first part of your journey. Because I am, I am fulfilling my word. We see this earlier in Exodus. I'm not going to go there. But we see it earlier in Exodus where God essentially says, you will plunder the Egyptians. They will provide for you. You want to know what you're going to have for a quote? What did you say? Basic necessities? There you go. We're talking livestock. We're talking all kinds of things. All right. Secondly, Exodus 13, 18 says, And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. So what does that tell us? They weren't a mob. Think about it, folks. A million people? What would that look like if they all just ran out of there mob-like? How many would really make it? But no, the scriptures tell us they went up out of Egypt in orderly ranks. Now, if you were to go to Numbers 10, it gives you some, some of kind of an idea what this was because out, once they got out across the Red Sea into the wilderness, they wouldn't camp, but they camped a certain way and then they marched in a certain order by tribes and they were all ordered. So every time the community moved, it moved in an orderly fashion. When it camped, it camped in an orderly fashion. So this wasn't any mob free-for-all. Why? What was the thing you guys gave me? Community spirit. Everybody's in it together. We're going to go out in order. It's not everyone for themselves. It's in order, and that's the way God had it. Finally, we get to where we finished up in the fall in our series, Exodus 14, the Red Sea. And at the Red Sea, probably, the, you know, up to that point, the greatest act of trust, right? Here come the Egyptians. Where are we going to go? And, you know, it wasn't until I, um, it wasn't until I was preparing for this week I thought about this. Do you, if you go back and look at Exodus 14, it doesn't say that anybody bolted ranks. And you would think that if that happened, given the story that is being told to us in Exodus about people and their nature, you would think that if at the edge of the Red Sea, a bunch of people bailed and went out and ran for themselves, right? You would think it would say that. Doesn't. It doesn't tell us, it, you know, basically it's silent as to that, but we are left to assume that nobody ran. They were scared. Many of them didn't trust that God would deliver them, but they didn't run. They didn't run. They complained, didn't they? Why have you brought us out here to die? We would have rather stayed in Egypt. At least we'd be alive, Moses. But nobody ran. Okay? Nobody ran. And you know what? When I thought about it, and this is just my opinion, so take it for what it's worth, I think that was really the first of the two miracles that day. It was a miracle that nobody bolted. 
was a miracle that nobody struck down Moses with a sword and said, you got us here, man. You're no leader. See you later. Okay? They stayed. They stayed and waited for God's provision, which was then, again, my opinion, the second miracle. But the first one was that they stayed and, and waited upon God, though they didn't have much trust, they didn't know what that meant, they at least went that far. They were able to go that far, and they saw God's deliverance, did they not? They saw God's deliverance. And there's going to be a, a I guess for lack of a word, a principle, something we're going to build upon over the next few weeks, and that is this, that deliverance always precedes the law. Deliverance always precedes the law. The people were delivered from bondage. Then God began to build in. He didn't build it in and ask them to trust for nothing. The very act of deliverance was the, was the first thing that God did so that the people might trust him. So we see from tonight what we just kind of reviewed this evening that, um, you know, God gives us choices. He's not a God that is going to force us to do anything. He gives us choices. He doesn't force us to do his will. So for us, what does that mean? It means that we decide how we want to respond to the circumstances of life. If you're in here tonight and you're someone who considers him or herself a follower of Jesus, you've at least made a declaration of trusting God. So when circumstances arise, you get to choose. You get to choose to live the trust that you say you have, that we say we have. And um, first week of the current series, I don't know if you wrote this down or you, you remember it, Pastor Terry said something along that, those exact lines. He said, um, I'm going to paraphrase it. Are we going to allow the unfairness of, and hurts of life to define us? Are we going to take those things as justification for not trusting God? Or are we going to build upon whatever advantages we've been given? That's the question. That's the question for you to ponder not just tonight, but as we, we go and start talking in the ensuing weeks about different laws and rules. How will we respond? Will we let, as those people did, clearly, will we let the oppression that we've been under, the bondage we've been under, things that we've done in our past, stuff that happens to us, will those define us? Or will we look to God and trust? Let's pray. Lord, um, we live in a world that is so literal. 
where it seems like most things are knowable, that information about virtually anything may be found and is available to us. And Lord, in such a literal world, it's hard sometimes to trust and to live in faith, to believe in things which we cannot see, to rely upon promises that perhaps are as yet unfulfilled. Tonight, Lord, we just ask you to come into our hearts and give us an assurance, Lord. Help us to navigate through the difficulties of life in trust and to trust you. Help us to remember more than anything, Lord, how much you love us. And that even if you give rules or discipline, it's because you are doing it out of love that you love us. I just pray, Lord, that we would this week, just in ways that perhaps we haven't been, just be aware of your love. And that we could rest in that, trust in it, prosper in it. Thank you, Lord, for this time we could have tonight together. Amen.